We have four texts before us. So the first is going to be Luke 9, 18 to 27. This is the same text that I preached on two weeks ago, but I wanted to take another week just because I felt like there was still so much uh, material there. There's so much depth there that I wanted to, to talk about. And so we're going to take another week to talk about this. And specifically what I want us to look at this morning is just the, the mystery and the wonder of how God has created us and created especially this time in history that we would actually know him more through suffering and just why that is, how that could be. Just this reality that we can know God, we can draw near to him through suffering is shown for us more in Psalm 92, which talks about how the wicked so often seem to flourish, whereas those who follow God seem to suffer. And then in 1 Corinthians 2, we're going to see the distinction between um, earthly wealth and abundance and the wisdom of God that is hidden and spiritual. And then lastly, in Job chapter 1, we're going to see an example of someone who did have all of the world's goods and yet whom God set up to suffer. And then again, as I preach God's word, I want to focus on this. Why did God do this? And what is the application of this truth for us this morning? So if you would, let me pray for us as we read God's word now that God would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and that God would strengthen me to proclaim his word. God, we know that the ultimate act of worship that we can perform in you, God, is the act of faith, Lord, is the act of belief that your word is true and living on the basis of that. And so, God, I pray that as your word is read right now, would you give us all a heart to worship you by believing your word, God, by trusting what you have to say and by living our lives based upon it. Lord, would you empower me especially, I pray, as I proclaim your word, just to proclaim it faithfully, Lord. Lord, both faithfully in terms of accuracy as to what the text means, but also faithfully, Lord, as to how my heart rejoices in and reflects the truth of your word. And so, God, in this way, I pray that all of us, Lord, would be built up in faith, that we might worship you more truly this morning, that we might see you for who you are, Lord. Reveal yourself to us by your word, I pray. I ask all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Jerry, if you would come and read for us from Luke, and then Don from Psalms, Lisa from 1 Corinthians, and Emily from Job. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels? But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Psalm 92, 1 through 10. It is good to give thanks to the Lord 
to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. In the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand, that though the wicked sprout like grass, all evil and all evil evildoers flourish. They are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 through 14. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom from, of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Now there was a test, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed all the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
Well, as we look this morning again at Luke chapter 9, uh, this morning's message is really going to be more of a, of a topical message. It's As I was coming at this text and as I see this command in verse 23 and all the way through verse 25, really, where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? As I read those words, the question was just really impressed upon my heart, and maybe it's been impressed upon your heart in the past as well, is how could it be possible that we would worship a God who is all good and who is all powerful, who could create the world, who could create this present time of history in any way that he would like, and yet who nevertheless calls his followers to suffer? to take up a cross, to lose their lives, to say that you can't gain the whole world because if you did, you would forfeit your soul. It almost seems unfair of God. If you were to be a non-Christian and you were to look at this text and you were to look at the Christian faith from the outside, you would probably read this and you would be very confused about why anyone would worship a God like this. Why would anyone worship a God who calls his followers, who calls those who truly love him, to take up a cross to follow after him? It seems almost cruel, does it not? I mean, sure, he might do that to his son, but then why also inflict that sort of expectation or that sort of demand upon everyone who would follow after him? And so I have this burning question in my heart and on my mind, why is it that God does this? You see, last time when I preached this text, I indeed preached on this command that every Christian is obligated to take up their cross and to follow after Jesus Christ. And I said that the cross that we are to take up is primarily the cross of love, that love is suffering for others, and that is the cross that we're supposed to take up. And yet we all know very well that suffering is not easy. If suffering were easy, it would not be called suffering. Suffering is by definition a difficult and a painful thing. And sometimes it is not enough for our hearts to simply know that God has called us to it, or that God has a reward for us in it. Sometimes, especially in the midst of more intense suffering, we might be prone to doubt God. You might be prone to ask, why? Why am I going through this? Why can't I just have an easy life? I love Jesus. Why do I also need to suffer? Why do I also need to take up a cross? Why do you call this good? And so this morning, I really want to ask a question that's behind the text this morning, a a question that's behind the command that Jesus gives to us. Why does the Lord give us these sort of commands? Why has he created the world in such a way that it's good for us to suffer at this present time? And my hope is that this will accomplish two great aims in our hearts as we see this, that by understanding why God has done something, that therefore we'll be better equipped to actually go out and do it because we will understand his rationale, because we will see his good heart behind it. And therefore, even if it is suffering, even if it is difficult, because we understand his reasons, because we understand why, it'll give us that extra patience and endurance when that is needed. 
But I also want to look at this because I think that asking this question gets us to the blazing center of the gospel. That in Christ, God is now giving us a new and spiritual life, a life that is hidden in the soul, beyond the reach of any sort of earthly loss that we may experience. And so as we see more clearly what God is doing through Jesus Christ, that we ourselves will rejoice in this new spiritual life that we are given so that we don't fear any sort of earthly suffering. So what I want to do in this message now is to offer two primary reasons why God has so ordered creation and why he's especially ordered this period of history for his people to suffer, why he's ordained that the way that we worship him now is by taking up a cross and by losing our lives. The first reason why God has chosen this is so that we would not be distracted from the love of God by the love of the things of this world. So that we would not be distracted from the love of God by the love of of this world, or another way to put it is so that we would not confuse our love of God with our love of this world, so that we could see clearly the goodness of God Himself. That's the first reason why God has done this. And the second reason is that God did this so that He alone would receive complete glory, honor, and praise from our lives. God could not receive such complete glory and praise if our worship of him were always mixed with the blessings of this life. And so I want to look at both of these reasons now in order so that you can understand God's good purposes behind calling us to take up a cross, behind calling us to suffer. So again, the first reason why God has created the world in this way is so that we would not confuse the love of God with the love of the world, or so that we wouldn't get distracted from the love of God by the love of the world. Now here I want to offer up Job as a case study. I think Job is a great example to us, especially in the very beginning of where each of us are at right now in our lives. Job is a good example of a man who both loved God and loved the world. Now, when I say he loved the world, I don't mean this in a sinful way. I simply mean to say that he appreciated the things that the world had to offer. He enjoyed God's blessings to him, and not in a sinful way. Job 1.1 tells us that there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So this is Job. He loved God. He was blameless and he was upright. And yet we see that Job also did enjoy the things of the world. Again, not in a sinful way, but in Job 1, verses 2 to 4, we read about just the abundance that Job had. It said, There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Sounds like the good life, does it not? All this wealth, these many children, 
all this livestock, children who enjoy being together, who enjoy feasting together, who always invite one another over to their homes. Job is living a good life. He is worshiping God, and he is enjoying the world. Again, he is a blameless man. This is a good thing. And to re-emphasize this in the very next verse of Job chapter 1, God again emphasizes Job's uprightness. It says, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate his children, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. And so Job was a man who knew how to love God and to enjoy the many blessings of this life. And yet then, the story takes a very abrupt turn, and that's what we just read about, starting in verse 6. Again, it tells us that there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also was among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is no one like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Notice the the question that Satan asked God of Job. Does Job fear you for no reason? Does Job fear you for no reason? That's a good question, isn't it? And how could Job possibly answer it? If you were to go to Job in the midst of all of his wealth and you were to ask him, you were to say, Job, I know you love God and I know you're thankful for all that God has given you. But if you didn't have all this wealth, would you still love God? If God didn't bless you the way he's blessing you right now, would you still honor him as you do? And of course, it would be easy for Job to reply to that question, well, of course I would. I love God more than any earthly thing. That's the sort of answer that's very easy to give when life is going well and when everything seems right. Notice also that it's God who set Job up. Satan didn't come before God and bring up Job. God did. It's almost like God wanted to test Job. Is that wrong of God? Is it mean of God to encourage Satan to test Job or to give Job over to Satan for this testing? Beloved, I think all of us here, in one measure or another, face this challenge that Job faced of wondering if we really love God for no reason. Because God has indeed blessed each of us. Now again, I know that all of our lives involve suffering to one degree or another, and I know some of you have suffered greatly in your lives. And yet, at the same time, I also know that none of us have trouble putting food on the table. 
All of us have a roof over our heads. All of us have many earthly blessings in this life. In fact, in some ways, you could say that we are even wealthier than Job was, as described there in Job chapter 1. I mean, sure, Job had a lot more livestock than any of us have, but Job didn't have electricity. He didn't have modern medicine. He didn't have running water. We have all of these blessings that Job could only have dreamed of. We are a wealthy people living in a wealthy nation. And that's especially why I wanted to pause here and again consider how Christ calls us to take up a cross and to follow after him because this is a difficult, difficult thing for us who live in the shoes of Job with many worldly blessings. And so Satan can well go before God and ask the same question of us, do we fear God for no reason? We who have so much wealth, hasn't God blessed us in every way? And there are really two ways that we could respond to such a question. First, we could reject it as just kind of being a silly question. We could say, oh, who cares? The bottom line is that I know that I love God, and sure, I have lots of blessings, but they don't compete with God. I'm just going to leave it at that. I don't need to dig any deeper. But the second option, and the better one, I propose, given what God did with Job and what we see in the rest of Scripture, is that we realize the seriousness that this question demands of us. We recognize that this is a hard question to answer, and it concerns something of the utmost significance. I mean, we all understand, do we not, how easy it is to love someone else who really loves us, who does everything for us, who serves us in every way, who gives us everything we want? None of us would have any problem loving a person like that, would we? Of course, the challenge in loving a person like that is you always have this question, do I really love this person who is doing everything for me? Or do I simply love the fact that they do everything for me? So that if they were to change, if they were to do less for me, if they were to hurt me in some way, I would stop loving them. It is hard sometimes to distinguish between what is actually selfishness and what is genuine love. What actually cares about another person? Again, children are a very easy example of this, right? It's all easy for us to love a child who's always on his best behavior, who does many great things. Maybe a star athlete, all of his accomplishments are always in the newspaper and You know, he always cares for other people, and so he's always sacrificing himself, and and his renown is just everywhere, and we're always proud to say, yeah, that's my son, because it reflects so well on us, right? Because he is always so well-behaved. But what about the child who might cause a great deal of difficulty? The child who might have disabilities that can never be a star athlete and would require a great deal of you. Or the child who would cause you great grief and seems like he hardly ever listens to you. Will you love that child as well? Will you care for that child? Or did you really just like it when your children reflected well on you, when they made you look good? It's easy for us to understand how we would love someone who loves us back very well. And how hard it is to love someone who does not seem to love us. 
And so I think you will admit that it is not an easy question to answer of whether we truly love God for no reason when all these blessings seem to be coming our way, when life seems to be very good. If you think that you are such a good person that you would have no trouble loving God regardless of what your life looked like, then I would submit to you that you are naive about your own condition. You have a bit too rosy picture of yourself. It is not easy for any human being to love someone who does not seem to love them much in return or who cannot do things for them. The Apostle Peter had a right view of his own heart, and here is how he put the value of this question, do I really love God for God, or do I love God just because he's good to me? This is 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says that having tested genuineness of faith, that means to have faith that has endured suffering, has endured trial, he says that that is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. He is saying that even if your test results in your very death, that that is a glorious thing to have your faith proved genuine. Because genuine faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And beloved, this praise and glory and honor is not simply the praise and glory and honor that goes to God because of our genuine faith. It is also the praise and glory and honor that we receive for having trusted God and having been good and faithful servants to him. God will give us a commendation for all of those who endure such trials, and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. There is glory that goes all around when we have a tested genuineness of our faith. And so we should desire this tested genuineness just as much as we would desire gold that has been purified by fire. And so God was not wrong to set Job up. And God is not wrong to call you, Christian, to take up a cross, to call you to lose your life. Yes, it is a difficult and painful calling that he is giving to us, but it is a calling that comes with great reward and with great joy. You see, it is possible that God could call us to follow him and he could bless us in every way, just like he blessed Job. But then we would always have this question of, do I fear God for no reason? We would have no tested genuineness. We could never be sure. And our love for God would resultingly be weak and shallow. And so by calling us to endure trials and suffering, he's calling us to seek after the very best thing that we could receive in this life. The reward of knowing God himself. So that's the the first reason why God has ordained that there be this inverse relationship between our enjoyment of him, our satisfaction in him, and our earthly wealth and prosperity. 
so that we could see clearly that we do not merely love God because he is good to us, but we love God even in spite of the pain that we feel. Now, the second reason that God has set things up in this way is so that he alone would receive complete glory and honor and praise. Again, let's go back to Job for just a minute and ask that question again that Satan asked. Does Job fear you for no reason? Does Job fear you for no reason? And asking that question, Job could also well be asking, God, does Job really love you? Or does he simply love his abundance of cattle? Does he simply love his ten children? Does he simply love all of these good gifts that you've given him? In other words, when your life is going well, you may be giving lots of praise and glory and honor to God, but when the world looks at you, when the spiritual principalities and powers look at you, they will always have this question. Well, does he really love God? Or is this just a show that he puts on because he has everything that he could possibly want? It's like when we always see athletes, you know, who want to give praise to God for winning the game or for some talent that they've been given. I mean, it's a good thing to give praise and glory to God for those things. But none of us, when we watch that, think, oh, now there's a sign of true faith. Someone that is giving praise to God for his athletic talent or for winning the game. We don't think it's true faith because we wonder if he lost the game, would he still give thanks to God? If he didn't have that talent, would he still give thanks to God? In other words, there's always this question of whether God is really a priceless treasure or whether the things of this world can possibly compare to him. And yet God makes clear in his word that he wants to be magnified higher, far and above every other earthly thing. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is Isaiah 48, 10 and 11. It says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Beloved, the essence of idolatry is giving the glory that belongs to God to something else. Giving the satisfaction that belongs to God to something else. The joy that you're supposed to have in God, you take joy in something else. And in this way, when you have a life that maybe you do truly love God, but you have all these earthly blessings besides, you always have this question. Is he really satisfied in God alone? Or is it God mixed with all these other idols? This is why scripture says many times that there is no one like God. Just consider Psalm 86, verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. And if there is no one like God among the gods, then we can be sure that there is no one like God in all the earth. That money is not like God, that sex is not like God, that fame is not like God, that there is nothing that is as good as God. There is no earthly gift that we could receive. 
You see, you, you give glory to something. You praise it when you enjoy it. When you say that you are satisfied in it. And so because God wants all praise for himself, it means that he wants us to enjoy him alone. He wants us to be satisfied in him alone. He doesn't want half of our heart to be happy in him and the other half to be happy with how well our life is going. He wants so much glory from our lives that we could lose everything we have just as Job did. And at the end of it, we could still say, God, you are worthy of all my praise and of all the glory. When someone says that in the midst of losing everything, they give God more glory than the one who praises God in the midst of wealth and abundance because they prove by their life and by their words that the loving kindness of the Lord truly is better than life. So again, it is a good and it is a worthy gift from God that we should endure much suffering and much trial, that we should have to take up a cross for the sake of Jesus Christ in order that we show the world that God truly is better than anything the world has to offer, that he alone deserves glory and honor and praise, that he alone deserves to be known as a satisfaction for our souls. And so in both of these ways, we see that it is good of God both to give us suffering and to call us to embrace suffering in our lives. Because his glory and the joy of knowing him are two significant of things. Just to enjoy prosperity, enjoy wealth, and to trust that, yeah, we really love God too. No, it is better, beloved, to be tested and to be sure that your satisfaction really is in him than to enjoy the pleasures of life and to just hope in the bottom of your heart and in the back of your mind that God really is the only God in your life. Again, my hope in saying these things is, is that each of us will learn not merely to endure suffering and try to get through it, but as this text in Luke 9 says, that we will actually take up our cross That if we do not have a cross, we will go and find one for the sake of glorifying God in our lives. Because Jesus himself came to seek us out and to seek us out upon that cross. You see, beloved, it doesn't pay to take up merely any kind of suffering. There were many Christians in the Middle Ages who were confused about this and who thought that suffering just for the sake of suffering was a good thing. They would endure extreme diets and extreme fasts. They would whip themselves on the back because they thought, well, God tells me that I'm a sufferer, and so I'm just going to inflict this suffering now, and I trust that God will be glorified in it. I do believe that any sort of suffering can lead us to a greater appreciation of God himself. But at the same time, the specific type of suffering that we're called to take up is the suffering of the cross. It is the suffering of loving others, of dying to ourselves for the sake of serving others. And we can have great hope that when we enter into this kind of suffering, we will come out on the other side with great joy. 
We can have confidence in this firstly because Jesus himself did this. Philippians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that when Jesus came, it says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus embraced the greatest suffering that could possibly be offered to humanity, not only the physical suffering of the crucifixion, not only the social suffering of shame and ostracization, not only the emotional suffering of guilt for sin, but even the spiritual suffering of being abandoned by God. Jesus endured all of this suffering. And then verse 9 of Philippians 2 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Beloved, this is the hope we have when we enter into the cross. That we will come out resurrected with Jesus on the other side, reigning with him, inheriting all that he inherited, one with Jesus Christ. And so we see that whatever suffering we enter into in this life, it indeed does pale in comparison to the glory that is awaiting us in union with Jesus Christ. So let us joyfully run into suffering here and now, knowing the glory that awaits us. 2 Timothy 2, 8-13 says this very clearly. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Beloved, if you die with Christ, if you will receive, if you will take joy in suffering right now, then you will live with him. If you endure suffering, then you will reign with him. This is a greater reward than anything that this life has to offer. And in this way, beloved, we see that this really is the beating heart of the gospel. That in Christ we have life that the world cannot see. That is better than any treasure that the world could possibly possess. Colossians 3, 3 and 4 says, For you have died. And that died refers to our death in Christ, but it also refers to the physical suffering that we endure, taking part in the sufferings of Christ. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with Christ in God. It is not obvious. It does not consist in worldly goods and worldly pleasures. It is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So, beloved, endure suffering. Take joy in suffering. Again, not merely suffering for the sake of suffering, but suffering for the sake of love. Suffering in the cause of the cross. 
And beloved, as we do this, then we do have to recognize that the life we have with Christ is a life that is hidden with Christ. It is not clear to our natural senses. And therefore, we will be prone to wander. We will be prone to go back to the pleasures and the ways of the world. And so we must also learn to continually set our minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are on earth. We must learn the skill of preaching to ourselves, the skill of gathering with other believers who we know who will remind us of the things that we cannot see. Because our eyes will continually want to tell us to seek after worldly things, seek after worldly treasure. The peer pressure we have from outside the church will continually call us to pursue that end. And yet, as we remember what Christ has done for us, as we remember the glory that he received as a result of his suffering, then we will also say to ourselves, I want to embrace this suffering with joy right now. And so continually speak to yourself and don't merely look at the world around you. Don't merely look to your physical condition, but look to what is not seen. And then lastly, beloved, I just exhort you to not complain. When you encounter suffering, whether it is suffering for the cause of love, whether it is suffering because you have a body that is breaking down or because you have family that is difficult to love or that is hurting you, if it's suffering because you have children that are difficult to manage or because the weather is just bad and it never seems to get sunny, but praise God it's sunny today, regardless of what your suffering may be like, do not complain. To complain in the midst of suffering is a double insult to God. It says to God, number one, that my joy was found in this earthly thing and now this earthly thing is taken away and I am not happy about it. And it also says to God that you yourself, God, cannot make up for this earthly suffering that I am now experiencing. And so if we complain in the midst of suffering, we lose all reward, all expectation for future glory from that suffering. Instead, when we suffer, remember how Christ himself suffered and how he entered into glory on your behalf. And then enjoy your own trial, knowing that you are tasting more and more of what it means to be with Christ. And so, beloved, may we be a people who are countercultural in every way, because we can look forward to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, knowing that our bodies will one day be raised with his. And because of that, we endure this light and momentary affliction. And if we have great wealth like Job had, then we even seek ways to give up our wealth. If we have great earthly blessing, then we simply try to find ways to go to those who do not have such great earthly blessing, that we may know the blessedness of sacrifice and of suffering, that we may know the fellowship with Christ upon his cross so that we also will be raised up with him. And so, beloved, do not despise God for calling you to take up a cross or for whatever suffering he may give you in this life. Oftentimes in prayer, I wrestle with God that he has not given me enough suffering. And I ask for him to make clear to me where would he call me to go that I may know more of this suffering for the sake of the cross. This is what I want. This is my heart's desire. 
I do not want to be fooled on that last day. I do not want anyone to be able to say to me, do you love God for no reason? I want to be able to say, no, look at my life. I have indeed given up all for the sake of following after Jesus Christ so that God can get all the glory in my life and so that I can know the joy of knowing Jesus Christ in fellowship with his sufferings. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, I indeed praise you for your wise and glorious plan that you would allow us, God, to know you apart from all the blessings that this world provides, that you would allow us to know you and you alone. And so, God, I pray that you would help us, God, to find much joy and satisfaction in that reality, even if the world leaves us, even if we have to give up our very lives for the sake of your kingdom, would we say it is worth it because we know you. 